Welcome to the Cloister Bell podcast. It's a sort of Terulian diode bypass transformer, a podcast that feeds on pure energy. Today we continue looking at Tom Baker's first series of Doctor Who with the third story, The Santoran Experiment, the two-part adventure originally broadcast between the 22nd of February to the 1st of March, 1975. The TARDIS cloister bell. Imminent disaster. The cloister bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh, no. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Liam, and I'm joined by Rob. Hi, Rob. Hello, Liam. And how are you? Good, thanks. Great! Yeah, enjoy, uh, enjoying the sun. It's it's a bit too warm. It is a bit, but I mean, it's it, it's a huge difference from May's gone. I mean, that was a complete washout. I think we only had three days in uh, in May where it didn't rain, and I'm not exaggerating. But yeah, it's a huge transformation. The weather's lovely. The sun's out. It's mostly clear blue skies. A little bit too warm, and you know, having to wear nice clothes rather than big frumpy jump jumpers. Um, but yes, the weather is a huge improvement. Yeah. Do we talk about the weather a lot? We've probably got all the international listeners thinking, God, they really talk about the weather a lot. I think it's a, like a British thing. Yes, well, actually, because... to, uh, to to go against the uh, the stereotype of the British thing of constantly talking about the weather, we do actually do that. Not as mainly a small talk more than anything else, but I do have a cup of coffee here. I mean, it's disgusting. It's absolutely revolting. Um, but it's, it's keeping my energy levels up. Yeah, just had to endure Oh God, it's rank. Anyway, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've I've seen I've said that to people abroad, like family, and friends, and I've said like, oh, first thing I'll say is, how's the weather? <laughs> and like, you people always say this to the go to thing. <laughs> what do you mean, you people? Yes, uh, I remember uh, this was years ago. Like, uh, what are you talking about? The thing. <laughs> I remember years ago. Um, when I went to uh, America with a couple of friends, one of them is German. And, um, you know, the whole German stereotype is that, you know, they're very efficient. Um, and he he went, no, that's just that, that's just a ridiculous stereotype. I don't know where that comes from. We're not efficient at all. And then he actually planned his... Because sh- one of the places that we visited was Philadelphia. And he planned his shopping in Philadelphia uh, because he wanted to buy his family, you know, family and friends, like, clothes and stuff. And he actually put it's like when I'm buying it in Philadelphia because they don't actually tax these things, um, so actually it'll work out cheaper. Went, you're not efficient. Alright, okay. Whatever <laughs> whatever you say. Uh, <laughs> Saving those pennies. Yeah. It's uh no, I mean it was a good idea and everything like that, but I don't think any you know, if you're going I don't think anyone would usually go on holiday, um, and go, right, what is the tax system in the different states of the country I'm visiting and where does it work out cheaper? Only a German would do that. It it, it did actually, because I, I bought a couple of clothes and went, yeah, bloody hell, this is ridiculously cheap. This is fantastic. Um, so it was actually great. But yeah, sometimes there's a reason why these stereotypes are around. It's uh, it's because they're real. <laughs> so yes, we do talk about the weather an awful lot. So um, have you been doing anything this week? Um, just the usual, really. Obviously, there's work. Um, reading when I have the opportunity. Still going through the poems of uh, Ted Hughes, 
and oh yes still going through the essays of George Orwell and there's another book I'm reading which eludes me at the moment um did go a bit mad with uh, some blu-ray purchases so I bought uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles uh, John Combat is the thing I've seen that before obviously and I had it on DVD but now I bought it on blu-ray with it remastered and everything um the Long Good Friday, which again had it on DVD, seen it, one of my fav- all-time favourite movies, it's fantastic, but that's been remastered. Well, not recently, it was a few years back, so I bought that on Blu-ray. Um, and Mona Lisa, uh, which I've never seen before, uh, but I've heard really, really good things. Uh, that's got Michael Caine in it, as, um, and it's maybe really, really good. Um, and in terms of television, I have been... I finally got back to watching Twin Peaks. I've been wanting to do it for a while. So, uh... Ah, right. You know what? I haven't even finished that because I got the Blu-ray a few years ago. Ah, right, okay. um, I think I mentioned it to you. Mm -hmm. Maybe a long time ago, actually. uh, Five years ago. uh, Which I started and didn't get around to finishing. Do you remember how how far you got into it? don't remember. I remember, I think I asked you because I got a bit confused about how to start it because... There's um, maybe three versions of the first episode because you have the pilot, the actual broadcast version, an international version, and like a TV movie version. No, th- so there's it's, just it's, two it's, ver- it's, two versions of it right. because the, the pilot version <laughs> is um, an hour and forty five minutes or something like that. So it's it's movie length, but you have two versions of it. One is the actual pilot, so think of it as like the very first episode of Twin Peaks. Then you have the international version, which has this few extra bits and pieces in, and this, and this, it's this idea that you can watch it as a standalone thing, and they reveal, they try and reveal who the murderer is, and all the rest of it. It's sort of interesting. Yeah. Um, but I would just watch the the pilot, and then and then go in to watch the series. Um, okay. I mean, obviously, watch the international version if you're interested. It's you know, it's it's still worth watching, but. Uh, I would say watch a bit the, of a double watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch the pilot and then go straight into yeah. episode one, and just. It kind of reminds me of you know the Doctor Who the beginning box set. Mm-hmm. If you click play all, it plays the pilot and episode one, um, so it doesn't make catch some people off guard. I remember that. I mean, it's fine with me. I like both. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think the DVD should have been a bit more clear on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I can understand why they call it uh, that first attempt the pilot, but it really wasn't a. It's not really a pilot, but yeah, yeah. It should really be like separate from the play all, or well, I wouldn't kind of like disregard it to the special features, but that's kind of where it should be. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think it should be a, a special feature rather than regarding it as a. Because really, what, what I'm saying it's like it's it's a proper episode of the story, and it's it's not. And it's not. And it, if anything, people might like be like. Wait, I've just watched this, and then they might just skip episode one. <laughs> yeah, which is understandable. Um, or they think they might think it's oh, they've, they've put the same episode twice. It's yeah, they're... and the, they might think ah, uh, those BBC they're always messing up these Doctor Who DVDs. <laughs> well, they're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, talking of which, um, the Blu-ray releases would not be the Blu-ray releases unless there was a delay. Um, and uh, at the time of recording, a couple of days ago, just got the uh, the announcement that the season twenty four Blu ray box set will be delayed, uh, but it's only by a week. Really? Oh. So it's uh, not like I think in, in previous instances where it's like I've got to wait another month. Um, 
Because I think it was supposed to come out on the 21st or something like that. But now it's right. coming out on the 28th. Um, so it's, I just need to wait a, a week longer than I normally would have. Mm. So it's, it's sort of fine. But I was looking forward to, um, uh, to you know, to watch that. Because it's, yeah. it's not the best season of, of Doctor Who, but it's certainly one of the most enjoyable. I just wanted to enjoy Time and the Rani. What's wrong with, you know, but just got to wait now. <laughs> I wonder if... Um... The collector's editions won't sell out as fast now, now that they're no longer um, strictly limited with the normal releases. That's a good point, actually. It'd be interesting to see if if the, the sales of them are um, affected in any way. I mean, I suspect, obviously, I still think that the, the sales of them will, will remain quite healthy. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this week I've been playing quite a bit of GTA Five. No, oh, right, okay. Um, Grand Theft Auto Five. Uh, I'm quite early on on the story mode because I played through it on the PS3, um, and then when I got it again for PS4, I couldn't really be bothered to play through it properly, and I've just kind of got back into it. Mm-hmm. You know what? I've actually been playing on a remote play on my phone. So I got my 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 tiny my tiny phone propped up. With the controller, um, I've been playing on and off sometimes on the telly, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay. Get on with that. Um, what have I been watching on the telly? Uh, me and my wife wanted the latest season of Grey's Anatomy and one of its spin-offs, Station Nineteen. Um, and at the moment, it uh, it's dealing with COVID. Oh God! In the, in the hospital, so <laughs> right. you can't you watch stuff to escape reality, but no, all of a sudden. Um, it's it's no longer just a a trauma unit in a hospital. Uh, it's the whole hospital is dealing with COVID. Yeah. So and in fact, the the main star um, is like she's got COVID. She's in a respirator, um, but now she's like on a beach, and all the, all the people who have died over the years are coming to see her. Mm. Um, and also, Station Nineteen. So this this. Um, Firefighter spin-off. Um, they're just doing COVID tests in the fire stations. So it's a bit depressing. No, I, I, uh, I just no. Jeez, it's okay. Um, Not my cup of tea. I certainly wouldn't be watching it. I'm more for. I mean, this is sort of my taste in general, anyway. But it's sort of uh, my thing is, look, if I want to watch anything decent and normal, I basically have to watch anything that's that's pre 2020. Yeah. Just people behaving but, um, normally, and uh, yeah. But now I'm, I'm just sat watching people with face masks on. Oh, for goodness sake, it's bad enough walking out in the street and seeing people wearing the damn things when they're out in the open. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, um, yesterday or the day before, I watched episode one of Marvel's Loki. All oh, right, yes, I've seen that uh, advertised in quite a few places. How is it? It's really good. Uh, uh, One Division took a while to pick up, but it was really good at the end. Mm-hmm. We had the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which went for about six episodes. Um, it was good. Um, maybe compared to the other shows, not as memorable. Um, I didn't really care about the whole villains, uh, but it, it was good seeing um, Sam become Cap. But with Loki, it does seem more relevant to the whole narrative you've got um, have you seen Endgame 
Uh, no, I don't think I have. No. Okay. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that ends that conversation. Yes. It is good. Yeah. It, it's. I think it's going to be more relevant because there's going to be a big, big plot development in the MCU soon, and I think this this show is going to kick it off. Ah, right. Okay. Interesting. Actually. Yeah. It was good. It was funny. Um, but that's that. Oh, um, Harrison Ford's been out and about, hasn't he? Yes, he has. Um, so, if you, uh, for listeners who may not be aware, we we're in the the northeast of England, and uh, they are filming the new Indiana Jones movie uh, near here. I think uh, I think they've been filming near Bamborough Castle, as, as well as a few other places. Yeah, and I think a few weeks. Earlier, they were in North Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sightings of Harrison Ford in Newcastle have have uh, has got people tremendously excited. In fact, he he was in a, uh, I think it was a Japanese restaurant, um, and obviously they they were using it as perfectly reasonable. I'm not criticising them for this at all, but uh, just aware of it on social media, they were advertising it. Look, Harrison Ford's been here. It's just like, oh, that's fantastic. It's just like, oh, why couldn't I bump into him? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I first saw the picture, I think my wife showed me it, it cropped up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And straight away I thought, well, it's Facebook. It's a lot of shite. <laughs> <laughs> That's not real. Yeah. <laughs> but then it came up on the news, so I thought, oh, okay. He's, a, he's around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah. What would you, what would you say to, to Harrison Ford if you, if you managed to bump into him? <sighs> what would I say? Um, I don't know. I just freeze. I might say hello. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah, assuming you didn't uh, become. I wouldn't so say anything weird. And, yeah. What would you say? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, you'd probably go hello. Um, it'd probably be just something, just you know, the, the usual thing of, um, oh, t- you know, I think you're a really good actor, and I liked you in. But then, the, then it's the movie. Like, which movie would you say? Right, you know, the thing that immediately makes you think of Harrison Ford. Like, what's the movie that you would pick? Going like, that's my favourite. Uh, I don't know because I, I identify him as both Star Wars and Indiana Jones mm-hmm. in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, mm. I could just kind of mob him in like in official capacity, get my phone out, and be like, hi. I represent the Cloisterville podcast and just do an interview randomly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, balls to you for doing that. That'll be fantastic. And, you know, just getting an absolute exclusive with them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this week, Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell are why you not? and why, do I, why should I give a damn? Harrison Ford, everyone! Yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Moving on. Um, yeah. So uh, before we get onto the the main brunt of the uh, the podcast, just uh, the social media information. You can contact us on Twitter at Podcast Bell. Uh, please do. We we love hearing from you, and that seems to be the best place to um, you know providing your comments on the Doctor Who stories we're going to review. Get in contact with us in general anyway. We love to hear from you. Uh, Instagram, same thing. Cloister underscore Bell, and our own website cloisterbellpodcast.com where you can access the podcast there. But we also have some extra nice bits and pieces. There's some games on there, word searches and so on. And uh, if 
uh, and the other thing as well, of course, you know the usual thing: like, share, subscribe, tell people about the podcast if you know if you if you like it, get the word out. But if you and we would be tremendously grateful if you do that. But if you would like to support us, uh, just that little extra step, of course, be over the moon to you can support us on Patreon if you wish. Um, you can uh, find the link to that on our website, which again is closetobellpodcast.com, or you can search for us on the the actual Patreon website. Yeah, and if you'd like to leave a review, would be. Um, happy to read that out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do that on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. Great, thanks, Rob. So yes, so today we are looking at the Sontaran experiment. So uh, just a quick plot synopsis: the Doctor, Sarah, and Harry arrive on Earth, which is now a desolate wilderness. They discover a group of stranded human Galsec colonists lured there by a fake distress call. The distress call was set up by the Sontaran named Steyr who has captured the humans to conduct experiments on them to discover the human body's weaknesses as part of the Sontaran's goal for domination of the galaxy. The cast and crew, Tom Baker, plays the Doctor, Elizabeth Sladen, Sarah Jane Smith, Ian Martyr, Harry Sullivan, Donald Douglas, played Vural, Glyn Jones, Kranz, Peter Walshall, played Eric, Kevin Lindsay, played Steyr, Peter Rutherford, played Roth, Terry Walsh, played Zach, Zaki, no, it's Zeke. Zeke, that's it. Yes, thank you. Played Zeke. And the story was written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Script editor was Robert Holmes. The story was directed by Rodney Bennett. It was produced by Philip Hinchcliffe. Music was by Dudley Simpson. The costume design was by Barbara Kidd. And the production design was by Roger Murray Leach. Now, uh, this is actually a return to us. We reviewed this story back in the very early days. It was podcast number 32. So if you want to hear our thoughts on that, uh, go and listen to that. Bye, everyone. All right, okay, no, we'll talk about it properly. Um, Yeah, so obviously, because we're reviewing the whole of Tom Baker season 12, it would seem a bit odd just to completely uh, ignore the story. And um, uh, we thought we would review it and see if our opinions or appreciation or otherwise of the story have have changed somewhat. Um, I think that the Suntoran experiment is... a bit of a funny story in some respects it's certainly a story that tends to be overlooked because it's sandwiched between these two giant stories you know it it, it follows the arc in space which uh, obviously we reviewed in our previous podcast and it's a huge fan favorite and rob and i you know follow that we absolutely love that story um and and then of course it's followed by the huge genesis of the daleks um so you know sandwiched between those two stories it will i think it's sort of obvious why it would be forgotten the fact is as well is it's not really a fully formed story in the sense of it's only two episodes and in fact revenge of the cybermen which we will obviously come come to in a, a couple of podcasts time but in terms of fan reputation revenge of the cybermen is sort of maligned a bit but even that appears more memorable than this story. So, so some touring experiment tends to be forgotten about. Um, I mean, would you agree with that, Rob? Do you, you know, when you think of Doctor Who in general, specifically Tom Baker or this season, where does the Suntoran experiment sit with you in terms of thinking about it? Well, I'm quite familiar with it. I haven't watched it quite a few times, so I don't, I don't kind of forget about it or disregard it. Mm-hmm. I it. It is an odd one as a standalone story, especially having it on a standalone DVD. Um, it's a weird one to put pull off the shelf and put on. Um, 
a weird thing to say since I said I just watched it loads of times. <laughs> but um, I think watching it on the telly um, would have worked fine in a serialised format um, because the whole series, week by week, is all one story. Mm-hmm. Some people dip dip in, dip out, and people some people might not even notice it was a two-part story. But it's all part of the same same narrative so i think i think i think on telly i I think you can forgive them for doing that Mm -hmm. but yes as as a standalone story the way we consider it i think it is a bit a bit peculiar Mm -hmm. um just as a side bob baker you know he's i think he mentions it in the uh in the the commentary of the story that's available on the dvd and the blu-ray it's also there in the making of documentary you know he talks about how he and dave martin were commissioned to write the story in their conversations with Robert Holmes about it. And he talks about, you know, they were actually told from the very beginning it was always going to be a two-part story. Uh, And he always, you know, Bob Baker always says, which was unprecedented. Um, I'm not suggesting that Bob Baker should know the entire history of Doctor Who. That would be insane. That's our job. But um, it, it, it wasn't unprecedented. We had the rescue in the William Hartnell era, for God's sake. Um, anyway, but it's funny actually because, with the exception of the Colin Baker era, um, two part episode two two part stories were, you know, very rare. You know, you you had the rescue in the Hartnell era, and then that was it until you get to this point. They're a bit more regular with, when Peter Davison was the Doctor. Um, you know, you have Black Orchid, the King's Demons, and the Awakening. Which, uh, in terms of you know that 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 traditional format of classic Doctor Who of twenty five minute episodes, um, just in terms of, I mean, I think the Santoran experiment on the whole is a good story, but I find that if you're comparing it to other two parters that classic Doctor Who did, um, I mean, I, you could, I mean, I don't know, Rob, whether you think what I'm doing is unfair comparing it to completely different stories and only comparing them on the basis that they're two episodes. But I find those other two, particularly with the, the ones that they do in the Peter Davison era, are far stronger and, and much more memorable. Yeah, I, th- I think this might disobey some like, traditional um, methods of storytelling because traditionally you'd have a, a beginning, a middle and an end, these three acts. Mm-hmm. But here we have two short 25-minute episodes. Uh and it's hard to point out these places. Uh, of course, yes, they probably are there because we have the arrival, um, and then they interact with the the South African lads, and then uh, <laughs> we have the conflicts at the end. Mm, do you think it feels odd in that respect? Because it it, it doesn't. Uh, it's maybe not the best structured. A piece of storytelling? Possibly. So, th- yes, yeah, so, so actually, so, so go into it. So this follows directly on from the previous story, The Ark in Space, where um, the TARDIS crew uh, transport down to Earth. And the idea, the reason why they've done that is um, the Doctor is aware that the, the transport system needs a, a little bit of um, uh, tinkering just to uh, improve it a bit, because it's, it's, it's slightly malfunctioning. Not massively, but a little bit. So that's the reason why they go down, so the Doctor can fit the uh, fix the... the, the, the the transmat uh, that's on Earth, 
And of course, Earth is supposed to be abandoned. And of course, it isn't. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a story. So as it's revealed during the, the course of the, the two episodes, um, the Santarans are continu can still continuing their, their war with the Rutans. And they're wanting to take over the galaxy. And that would mean interacting with humans. Which I think we're supposed to think that they're not very used to encountering them. So... No, but, um, which is odd because the galaxy's full of them yeah, at the moment. Yeah, um, but uh, Star, who's the Santoran in this episode, has been instructed to find out what human physical limitations are, uh, which is the experiment of the story's title. Now, uh, when we were looking at uh, the previous stories of this season, uh, principally with Robot, we said that... Um, when you look at season 12, I don't think this was a deliberate choice in the sense of wanting to create a story arc. Certainly in the sense of, you know, <clears throat> I don't think it's a story arc in the sort of like the modern sense. But if you look at season 12, there is this, there does tend to be a, um, the vast majority of the stories looking at sort of the perversion of science. So in Robot, you know, Kettlewell uh, is misguided and then you've got the Scientific Reform Society who are like it's like scientific tyranny personified and they're the main villains and of course then with the next story after Santorin experiment we've got Genesis of the Daleks and Davros is a mad scientist and then in this story it really shows the scientific method perverted into pure sadism um, because we have uh, we have the Santorin experimenting uh, on humans in, in in a very sadistic way and it's clearly inspired by the Nazis um, in fact Bob Baker when he said you know that the, when they were naming the character Steyr it was you know they thought that had a strong German sound to it so it's you know it was clearly a an idea that they were um, right, okay. fully aware of and when, and when you look at it you know what he does as a character you know he he burns his victims he you know, we don't see it, but there's uh, we see it in a um, in some dialogue where Stai talks about you know how he drowned uh, uh, one of the humans, and then we actually see uh, it's one of the characters that uh, that, that that Harry encounters. Uh, he's he's dehydrated to death, um, and this is all about Stai seeking to discover human physical limitations and how much torment they can take. And then later on, with his encounter of um, with Sarah. You know, it, mental torture is is included as well. So this is actually really quite a sadistic story. And um, although this is the third story in the season, this was the first story that was produced by Philip Hinchcliffe of this season. Uh, Robot Hood was produced by the previous producer, Barry Letts. Uh, with Robot, and then the Suntaran experiment was the next one in the production order. And already, um, you can see the huge change that the show was was going, you know, was going to go under for the next two three years. Um, you know, in terms of the themes, it's quite. Um, I mean, there's nothing lighthearted about it, is there? Uh, no, no, not really. Um, with the odd bit of wit and humour in there. Mm. But uh, no, not really. It's quite grim. <laughs> yeah, it is. But uh, going back to the, the previous point that we were talking about, which was because it is a bit of an unusual story, which in terms of how it's how it's structured um, for a two part episode. So that the whole thing is just 50 minutes. Um, 
I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind it so much. I'm not. I'm not bored when I'm watching it. But there is quite an awful lot of padding, isn't there? Particularly in the first episode. Yeah, I think so. Um, it did. I sat down and watched it this morning. I thought oh, two twenty-five minute episodes. Um, it will be easy to get through, but it did kind of drag on here and there. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the the main problem that I have is that uh, it's it's really what you know Harry's involvement in the first episode, because all what he seems to do is just run around. Yeah, just run around, climbing over rocks. He, he falls down a crevasse, uh, uh, you know, early on in the episode, which makes them because it's it's a trap, and it, it makes Harry and uh, Sarah realize that they're not alone, because w- w- otherwise, how would the trap be set? Um, and it's it's a bit of a shame. You would think, um, you know, considering the, the the condensed nature of the story, you, you wouldn't think there would be enough time to to pad things out. But but we have that, and it's. A, I think where where the why the story gets away with it is because of actually how the story is directed and and the location. Because this is all set. Uh, this is all location work. There's no studio at all. So this was all filmed in Dartmoor. And I think um, the use of camera angles and, and the use of the location is done really well. And I think that's probably the reason why largely the story gets away with it. But, you know, in terms of actually criticizing, you know, analyzing the story, I think it's quite clear that there is quite a bit of padding in it, particularly with the first episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there anything in the first episode you think could be trimmed out? Well, that's... <laughs> um, it would be. I think it would have been quite nice if we saw Harry do a little bit more than just climbing around the place. Um, um, maybe. I mean, I don't know how you 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 would effectively have to rewrite um, elements of the story, but actually have him interact with with something a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, he comes yeah, into his um... own in the second episode, but you got to use his skills as a doctor looking after that guy. Um, who mm. unfortunately died, but maybe it would have been interesting if they'd kind of put him in some moral medical dilemma or something. Yeah, no, I think I think that's actually uh, quite a good quite a good suggestion because that that moment when he encounters that person, you know, because um, you know, I think that's a that, I think that's a very good scene, um, and it actually gives the, the character something to do and something to react to and the, the horror of the fact that this man's just chained up to die um and he did he he gave him some water and he did leave him i wonder if he felt partly responsible um when he returned mm-hmm. so maybe just a you know just um a little bit of fleshing out and giving him something you know a little bit more to react to i think would have been quite nice but i think um I think that's one limitation of the story. But as I say, it uh, it doesn't... I would say that limitation doesn't run through the entire thing. Uh, Harry is certainly given stuff to do in the second episode and it interacts things a bit more. Um, so I think that's fine. Uh, there's one other limitation of the story. <laughs> do you know what it is? The robot. Yeah. What, do, what are your thoughts on the robot? Well, we don't... I think they do they do a good job. You don't see um, where it makes contact with the floor. It must be kind of on wheels or something. <laughs> um, so all the shots kind of work well, but it, it, it's obvious what they're trying to conceal. Um, the robot, 
Uh, doesn't seem very menacing. I don't know why people are so scared of it. Why would you throw yourself off a cliff? Mm-hmm. Um, and why would you? Why would you not run away before it kind of grapples you? Um, especially when your guns aren't really being effective. Um, I don't know. It's a strange kind of. Um, does the Santorin really need it? I guess. Yeah, I mean, so for those that may not be familiar with the story, the the Santarin uses this robot to basically prowl and and kidnap victims for for his experiments, um, uh, which is a good idea. And but the the design of it is is a production limitation. It's um, taken on its own. It is quite comedic with the way that it looks, and I think and, and it's like and as you said, Rob. Um, you can tell with the way that they've shot around it. You can tell exactly what they're trying to hide with how they've they, they've basically put the robot on these 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 tracks, um, and the way that they've shot it, they're clearly trying to, to hide the tracks. Um, yeah, and um, I could get if they were trying to conceal who the true villain was, mm-hmm. but the, but that was in the title, so you know there's gonna, you know there's going to be a centaur popping up. Uh, yeah, well, this is the other thing. I mean, this isn't this isn't the only Doctor Who story which is uh, which is as guilty of, but um, the way that they try and establish the mystery of what the monster is and how they're hiding him, and you just you basically just see the hand of the centaur. Actually, all that's great, but it's like as you said. Um, all that mystery is kind of ruined by the title of the story. Now, Bob Baker and Dave Martin um, didn't name it the Sontaran Experiment. Um, I wish for the life of me I could remember what their original title was, but it was just a one-word thing. Um, and Philip Hinchcliffe actually was the one who said, oh, I don't like that title, it sounds a bit old-fashioned. Shouldn't we you know, put something which sounds a bit more, uh, a bit more interesting? So it was on the basis of that they then changed it to the Sontaran Experiment. But of course it gets rid of... It gets rid of that that sense of mystery. I mean, should, yeah. could they have just called it it's the a experiment? Shame. I, think, I think the reveal of the Santaran is probably one of the better parts of the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but we saw it coming. Yeah, we we saw it coming. But I mean, it it is it, it is still a great moment, and I think particularly with um, Sarah's reaction because she's already encountered the Santarans in uh, the John Pertwee story, The Time Warrior, which was her first story in the in the series. Um, and her reaction to, in fact, because she even goes Lynx, which is the name of the Centauran in that story. Um, her reaction really sells it. In fact, in fact, just going back a moment to the robot that we were talking about, because even though I think that the design of it is a bit, uh, is is clearly a, um, a flaw in the production, if, if, if you like. I actually think that the story gets away with it because um, I don't think it's an entire failure but I think certainly the reason why the story gets away with it is actually because of the actors the the cast is incredibly strong in this story and the way that they all react they, they clearly take this robot very seriously and because they're I would say that their performance is, um, is perfect um, because they're taking it seriously it allows you to almost take it seriously They they kind of their performance br- brushes over the cracks, if you like. Mm. Um, actually, talking about uh, the characters, for me, I think that the for me the best perform. I mean, not taking away anything from from the rest of the actors, but for me, the the, the most standout character is Peter uh, Peter Rutherford, who plays Roth. Um, 
he's he's the one who's um but on on the run from Stai. he's previously been tortured in fact we see that you know he he he'd been burnt um he's got these uh these scars on his arm he's clear you know uh he's clearly traumatized yeah right? clearly traumatized and i think he gives an absolutely brilliant performance what do you think uh, no i agree yeah um I'm not sure about some of the accents in this, but you can put that down to, um, well, of course, 10,000 years away. <laughs> accents can change, and uh, the fact that he's traumatised as well. Um, but yeah, the performance is good. Uh, a different different level of trust there, because the others were sceptical of the Doctor. Um, but in this case, he uh, can befriends Sarah, doesn't he? Yes. So mm-hmm. um, his... Um, since the priorities have changed, he's uh, just clearly in survival survival mode. Um, but yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's a good character. Yeah, and I just think it's a, a really good performance and really sells the the threat that the Suntaran presents. I just think it's a great performance. Um, you mentioned uh, the accents a few moments ago. Now, Bob Baker and Dave Martin actually wrote this into the story because when they were writing it they were having this idea, well, how would English develop in thousands of, you know, in, in many, many, you know, thousands of years' time? And they had this idea that, well, the language would likely be, you know, become condensed and so on. Um, and they thought that English would develop more along, like, um, the, the Afrikaans' way of speaking. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, which is an interesting idea, you know, being in, you know, that would develop on the lines of how South Africans uh, talk. Unless they went all separate ways, because we had Starship UK that went one way, and maybe there was like Starship Suit Africa. <laughs> they went off one way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, which is, uh, and science fiction tends to, you know, do this. I mean, it, it's there in novels. You know, George Orwell, nineteen eighty four, talks about you know, how would language develop? You know, if it was in the, if the hands of a totalitarian regime. It's there in Anthony Burgess' A Clockwork Orange. It's there in the movie Blade Runner. This idea, you know, you would combine English with Chinese and things like that. And so this is along those lines and the writers are thinking it will develop in uh, Afrikaans. So, I mean, what what do you think of that idea? And more to the point, what do you think of how it's incorporated into the story? It's good because we're... I don't want to draw too many comparisons to last week when we did the arc in space when we had um, the Doctor say, you know, um, all differences are left behind. But then we had just... Um, Caucasian actors. Like we said, yeah, um, all speaking uh, English, um, Southern English kind of accents. Um, it's almost like, okay, maybe they had these limitations where they couldn't... Um, cast a more diverse um, group, bunch of people. But then we have this story where um, they made the effort to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was a good choice. It, it does kind of set them apart from the colonists in the previous story. Um, but like you said, it, it shows a kind of progression. Did you did you say it was like um, how they thought the language would progress because South African is um is is kind of a mix up of all these um different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um I, I forget is that um a bit of German Yes I think South so yeah, African yeah. and some of those. Um 
so yeah, it's a good it's a good example. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting though that they thought that it would develop on those lines, especially because I mean, when this story was was made, I mean, the apartheid was in South Africa, um, and Bob Baker and Dave Martin had previously written this was the John Pertwee story. I don't particularly like the story, um, but I like the idea behind it. They did uh, the story called The Mutants. And that was their science fiction critique of apartheid South Africa. So it's interesting that, you know, given the historical period and previously they'd written a story which criticised the the racist regime at the time. But looking purely from from a language development, they thought English would develop along those lines, which is sort of interesting. It's sort of a shame because I would I would really like them to I would because they say that as an idea that was their thought and that was it I would really like to know a lot more about their thought process you know what made them think that to the you know and because it's clearly a decision um, which affected the casting of of the story and the way that the characters perform and speak um, it's a clear, clearly a deliberate choice in fact I wouldn't no sorry go on. I was just going to say, I wonder how um, language would develop in space and on colonies. Because um, we have our accent, I think, developed apparently from um, the more kind of industrial um, kind of development we had. Mm-hmm. Whereas down south, people weren't, um, they didn't need to shout to be heard <laughs> in a work environment. So they they talk more slowly and clearly, and and where they like, yeah, blah, 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 talking dead loud and fast, <laughs> and, like we need to be heard. Um, so because that was one idea of of how um, the all these these different dialects in in uh, in the UK kind of developed, especially in the northeast. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting as well, you know, coming coming from Newcastle, because you had the Geordie dialect uh, with. I mean, it's completely changed. There's actually an awful lot of Geordie now, which really isn't, you know, the younger generations just don't know about. But for, for many, many years, you know, you had Geordie and some of the words that we use in Geordie slang uh, dates back to the Vikings, um, you know, many, you know, hundreds of years ago. And the fact that, you know, that's still shaping the way that, you know, some people talk about, you know, when, when, when we, we were growing up, it's, it is interesting. Hmm. It's interesting where a lot of words come from. Um, there's there's a lot of kind of ancient. Um, obviously, there's a lot of Latin that's come through and other other kind of civilizations and uh, things from like Norse mythology and stuff. That's uh, that's all part of like day to day life. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. And as you say, the the different classes. I mean, the 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 fact of how we describe food as presented on the table compared to how it's how. We describe, you know, the, the animals as they're growing up in in the fields and farms, goes back to the Normans, because the the, the words that we describe, for example, beef, boeuf from from the old French, um, so the way that we describe things as they're presented as a meal comes from the French, from the Normans, because you know they were, you know, they were the, you know, they came along, dominated, and became um, the um, the establishment and the class and not they affected how they affected the language there whereas how we describe animals as they're they're living in the field develops you know is is a progression from the old english uh because 
that those group of people would wouldn't really be in contact with you know with the establishment so you get these two so that's how you end up getting uh, two languages developing at exactly the same time and then i think it's it's, it's a, i mean i'm simplifying it an awful lot but then 300 years later they then effectively emerge um and the way that we differentiate between other European languages, because at that point we go, you know, the way that you um, give everything a gender. Well, we're not going to do that because that's just stupid. You know, there's all so. Anyway, we've gone on a massive tangent, but I do think the development of English, uh, the development of languages, is interesting. Mm. But um, it would. Uh, it, just from that point of view, it would have been quite nice if we got a bit more detail of Bob Baker and Dave Martin's sort of reason behind that. Uh, it's an interesting idea. And as you said, Rob, it um, it gives us something a bit more interesting in terms of the characters and also allows us to differentiate between how humans were in the previous story. And it also ties up in an interesting way. But uh, And how they've developed. And there's, there's a clear... Um, visually, there's a divide because they're on the arc they were very clean mm. and well bred and um very formal but the, these guys on on the planet they're they're very dirty but <laughs> <laughs> the opposite yes yeah yeah so it's uh, again it, it is a wonderful uh, wonderful contrast between the uh, previous story and this one yeah um so oh, should we talk about the transmat beacons <clears throat> because the the team arrives um it's something that's always bothered me since I was younger. You have these beacons um, that are still on ground level, even though the terrain has obviously obviously changed over ten thousand years. Mm-hmm. Like they've got some kind of um, ooh, I don't know topographical buoyancy where they came. Like, <laughs> they just rose up, rose up with the. Uh, as the grounds change. Yeah, I know what you mean because funny enough it is this um I can't it's one of those things that I can't help but think when I'm watching, you know, I just just like brain shut up, just switch off and enjoy the story a bit. But yeah, funny enough it's, it's certainly I I've thought about it in the past, but certainly when I was watching it again uh, for this podcast, I couldn't help but think of going um this idea that you know, obviously it's been thousands of years, the the landscape's going to change and the likelihood is that these um uh, these teleport—I don't know what you call them—but yeah, really, they should have been covered by the land and so on. But yeah, maybe they were designed to just keep on moving up and yeah. shifting up to ground level. Maybe. And what about all the farmers' fields and the fences? Well, no, I mean, you would—you wouldn't do that the same thing. You've got to prioritize the technology. The transmat thing is more important than a bloody fence. Yeah. You can easily rebuild a fence. No, I'm saying why the fences there. What fences? What are you talking about? Well, you know when they're saying, well, humans haven't been around here for 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And then you look in the scenery and you have fields of cultivated stuff and fences. <laughs> like, well, you can see. <laughs> <laughs> that's stuff that's not clearly... You know, it's, you're supposed to ignore that. That's just something in the oh, distance, okay. yeah. That's the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the symmetry of nature. Mm. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this story's crap. It's got fences in it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> God, we really nitpick, don't we? Um, so, so really, the it's really the second episode 
um, where things really, I think, start to pick up. Things, I think, really start to gel a bit more with... Um, in terms of the use of all the characters, because uh, Harry finally you know gets stuff to do and is interacting with people a little, little uh, a little bit more, and uh, has some really good conversations with the Doctor, and you know we we get a little bit more humour in into the story, which I think is is probably needed because as I said before, it is quite it is quite bleak. Um, famously, um, whilst. I mean, most of the story was was filmed in story order, so it's only the I don't know the final five minutes of the story, maybe a little bit more, which is affected by this. But famously, Tom Baker uh, broke his collarbone when he was filming this story. Um, so there are moments when uh, they use a stunt double. Terry Walsh a lot more than they had initially planned because there's a fight sequence at the end of the story which we will get to which Terry Walsh would have always uh, been involved with but because Tom Baker was you know broke his collarbone you know he's there in the close-ups doing the dialogue but in terms of the long shots and him walking around and stuff he couldn't do that um, I wasn't aware of this till you mentioned it last time on the podcast. Uh, oh, have I, <laughs> I forgot. You ruined it. Uh, have, yeah, but I've have, forgotten again since. Oh, so, so, so when you were watching the story, do, were you not aware of that? Um, no, oh, um, I totally forgot. Ah, oh, well, no, that that's great. Um, it's always sort of stuck in my mind. So I, th- I think I think they actually handled it reasonably well for, for the most part. Um, but I th- you know, when you're sort of aware of it, I, c- I can't help but keep on thinking that's Terry Walsh, not Tom Baker. That's Terry, you know. Um, but I actually think, you know, despite that, they they managed to to cover it quite well. I think there's only one shot where um, it's perfectly clear it's 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 Terry Walsh when it's supposed to be Tom Baker, and it's it's when um, the Doctor appears up uh, behind two rocks to to actually stand up on top of them behind style um and you've got tom baker's voice clearly recorded uh, clearly overdubbing the thing but you can clearly see it's terry walsh even though it's a bit of a distant shot but i would say that's the only time when you kind of go it's clearly him when it's supposed to be tom baker but for the most part i actually think that they they handle it really well which is uh which is quite good yeah works well um and one of the guys dies during the fight scene Uh um Helping the Doctor. I think um, the Doctor's plan to get the Sunshine worn out worked conveniently well. It's quite strange that the Sunshine didn't think about this before going into combat. No, true, but then you, you know, the, the, you know, the Sunshine are warlike people, and you know they're not going to turn down a fight, and maybe th- you know. Maybe thought well, he was strong enough and could dispatch the doctor very quickly. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, when I'm watching it, I don't think that they are. I don't think that the Centaurans behaving stupidly or anything like that. Um, I think in terms of how it's how this whole thing's written and presented um, is is you know is is quite good. And in fact, it's quite interesting that on this occasion we have the Doctor who is distracting the villain through through physical means while the companion is the one who you know uses a sonic screwdriver in this case it's harry to get this device uh the cerulean diode bypass transformer 
Uh, it's difficult to say that, just let it trip off the tongue. You know, it, it's whereas I think, you know, usually in other stories, it tends to be, you know, um, you know it would be a, a character introduced in that story, maybe the companion that, uh, who will physically distract the companion, whereas the, whereas the doctor gets the sonic screwdriver and gets the device and all the rest of it. But it's... Mm. But it's it's reversed in this, and it's it's the doctor who you know is physically putting his life at risk and so on. So it's quite a nice little because you don't really. Um, I would say certainly with Tom Baker's doctor. I mean, I'm not saying that he he doesn't fight, but certainly compared to him to John Pertwee's doctor, he he never really got uh, physical. Yeah. No. Um. So, in terms of this, in terms of this era of the show, it's it's quite unusual. And the Santoran had quite a brutal death. It's almost like he doesn't even have a skull. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, so the way that's explained in the story is that Santorans feed off pure energy in order to energize themselves. But with Harry taking the Terulium diode bypass transformer, I'm getting better at that. Um, that reversed things, and then the energy feeds on the Santoran. And so we then we just see the the Suntaran stagger out his ship, collapse, and then just completely deflate. <laughs> um, again, it's I mean it's something clearly they've clearly got a rubber version of the Suntaran inflated, and then they just deflated. It. It's a very simple. I actually think though that it works. I mean, it's funny when you're watching the Tom Baker years. Um, which is one of the great things about the Blu-ray player, because uh, the, the the Blu-ray box set, because uh, we're finally because I used to have it on VHS and haven't been able to watch it for years, and finally it's on the Blu-ray. We can watch the Tom Baker years, and there's a you know, and this is the bit of the story that they they show in that, and you get Tom Baker's reaction, laughing his head off <laughs> as the Santoran deflates, just think it's like just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I suppose it is funny. But I don't mind it. I think it's you know I think I I think it's a, a decent special effect conveying perfectly well what's happening. Yeah, I miss those days. I I wish they'd like deflate the Santorums in the new new era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I I wish that the I mean it's funny with the Santorums because they were. They were supposed to be scary, but at the same time, because Robert Holmes was the one who actually created them, um, they were always a, supposed to be a little bit humorous because they were a satire on on war. Um, so there, were, there was always a satirical element about the Santorans, but they were at the same time supposed to be a bit of a threat. Um, I wish they remembered that in terms of of new Doctor Who, because and. Um, I think they've become too much of a joke in the new series. Yeah. Uh, that said, I really do love the new Santorans, but it's just not what I expected or what I wanted. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not more of the old. Yeah, and obviously you you want you want new things and reinventing stuff. And as you said, you know, um, so I haven't got a problem with them. Um, we're sort of like rejigging them here and there, but you know they're, they're a villain, and they're supposed to, you know, they're, they are supposed to be a, a pose a threat and and be and be menacing. Um, and that's that, that's one thing that that I miss, and I wish they would bring that back into the new series. They've become too much of a joke. Yeah. Whereas with the Time Warrior, the Santoran experiment, 
Um, I know that they appear in a couple of later stories as well, but I think in these two stories, you know, it's pitched really well. They get the humour, but also the threat that they pose as well. And certainly with the Centauran experiment, because, you know, we have a Centauran who's really sadistic. Uh, I mean, before the fight that we were talking about, he's he's um, set it up where he is he's got two experiments going in in one. So he's trying to f- establish um, the, the the physical endurance of, of two humans because they're holding this bar above uh, one of their colleagues, and if they just let it go, it will you know squash the breastplate of. Um, uh, and uh, and the rib cage of 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 the person who's who's tied to the rocks, um, and again that I think that's a scene that's 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 played really well. Appreciate I've sort of rattled along. Is there is there any points that I've missed that that you wanted to raise about the story? Not particularly. Um, we've talked about the characters, the setting. We've talked about the transmat. Um, we've talked about the villain. So, um, listeners' responses, um, one of the things that, that Rob put out on the, on our Twitter feed was just the question of, uh, what do you think of the Santana experiment? Uh, we actually had uh, quite a, de- a decent response, uh, asking people whether they thought it was good, average or bad. Uh, 72.7% thought it was good, 22.7% thought it was average, and only 4.5% thought it was bad. Um, uh, we actually did have one written comment uh, from from John Lane so thank you John for getting in contact with us uh, who said it's a nifty little two-parter giving us more info about the way Sontarans go about things a bit of the time period's cultural issues in terms of those who left Earth and those who stayed and choosing the South African accent was a clever way to show linguistic evolution cool Uh, very cool. Yeah, I think um, I think uh, John Lane pretty much sums up what we what we've said in the entire podcast. Um, so, in terms of a summing up and how you would score the story, um, how would you how would you sum up and uh, score the story, Rob? I'd sum it up as a good transitional piece uh, in season twelve. Mm-hmm. Not so good as a standalone story, and despite all its shortcomings, um, I do think it's a good story. I wouldn't uh, regard it as an average story, um, even though it is perhaps in compared to some others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it is a good one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I like it. I think there are some shortcomings to it, uh, which we've obviously touched upon. But I think for the most part, the the, the rest of the story uh, overcomes that. I think it's, uh, I think it's certainly quite strong in its ideas, and overall its execution. I think the the score provided by Dudley Simpson, I think, is good. And as I said, I think the the main strength of the story really comes from from the actors, who all do a fantastic job. But uh, for me, the the standout is Peter Rutherford Roth uh, character. Um. I would, having said all that, I probably say it was an average story. Um, really? Yeah, but then at the same time, I do, I do feel that that is being a little, perhaps a little bit unkind to it. But um, I just feel like 
despite it being two episodes in length, it does suffer from a little bit of padding, and it should be. I think maybe the execution could have been a little bit tighter. And as I said, even though I'm scoring it average, I do think it's you know it's still quite a. um, That isn't to say that I dislike it, and I will quite happily watch it. And of course, the other thing as well with it is it's like what I was saying before. Um, it suffers a little bit from being sandwiched in between two stories, which are, I would say, you know, are remarkably good, which is the, the Ark in Space, and of course you've got the, the huge favourite, which is Genesis the Daleks. And you've even got Robot, uh, which, you know, begins it all, and it's Tom Baker's first story, and I, which I think is good as well. Um, and I would, I would, I think it comes down to what would I prefer to watch? And, you know, if I would have no objection to watching the Suntoran Experiment, obviously. And if someone some, said, I'm just going to stick the Suntoran Experiment on, I'd be like, all right, fine, happily watch it. Um, but if it was down to preferences, I would much rather watch Robot. I would much rather watch The Ark in Space, for example. So even though I would yeah, say... Yeah, totally. Yeah, so even though I'd say it's average, it's I'm, I'm still not saying it's it's awful or... It, I mean, it's not awful by any stretch of the imagination. I just think it's a, a decent story, reasonably well told. Um but there are other stories that I would much prefer yeah. to watch. Yeah, I do think as a if we were looking at looking at it as a standalone story, without looking at looking at the greater picture, uh, I I would have possibly regarded it as an average story. But I've never been left feeling God we could have really done without this. <laughs> no, no, neither have I. Uh, you know, by no means am I. You know, am I saying that i mean if i thought i was watching a story that going off for the love of god we really don't need this then i would say it was bad but it you know the Suntory experiment is by no means bad um but it, it's it's been quite a while since we've uh we, we've you know reviewed a story and, and given it uh different rankings but i mean it's but nonetheless it's still a story that we appreciate yeah i wonder what we rated this last time if anyone's interested, go find out. Because <laughs> we sure as hell can't be bothered. No, uh, probably what I will do is because I'm curious myself. I will because I know it's it's podcast number thirty-two. Um, right, so maybe we can um, talk about that next week. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll dig it out and see what what score we get, we gave because uh, that was back in the days when we scored things out of ten. Yeah, maybe that was simpler. <laughs> <laughs> no, I quite. I, I much prefer the system that we have now. Yeah. You know, do we think good, it, average, and bad? Yeah. Could we maybe sandwich in a few other things like excellent, good, um, all right, <laughs> <laughs> bad, badder. What ten separate categories? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Don't need. laughs> yeah, but yeah, maybe. Nah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's average. No, um, so, um. So yes, that's our thoughts on the Satori experiment. I have actually enjoyed uh, returning it to uh, returning to it for the sake of the podcast. I mean, I would have watched it anyway. I've watched it you know, several times, but um, it's it's been quite good just to uh, to discuss yeah. it again. Because I, I did suggest that we just skip it because we've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> I was even thinking, God, we don't even need to put a podcast out that week. Just repost the old one. <laughs> week off <laughs> yeah week off uh maybe we should have but uh no i have enjoyed this and uh hopefully listeners you have as well um i think most listeners will probably know what uh what's coming up next but um over to you rob 
Okay, next week we have the fourth serial in season 12, The Penultimate, which is Genesis of the Daleks. It's a great six-parter. Um, perhaps if the Santoran experiment had been a four-parter, I wonder if that would have taken two away from Genesis. So thank God for the Santoran experiment <laughs> in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes we'll talk all about that next week please get in touch with your thoughts on that um, and we'll, you'll hear from us soon yep uh, so uh, until until next week bye everyone bye